Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Today we have a very important conversation to be had, which is the result of the documents that were put together at last week's two very important meetings in Beijing. I'm here in Beijing, uh, and so is one of my guests, Dr. John Gong, and um, another guest, Professor Bert Hoffman, uh, is joining us uh, from Singapore. He's the director of the East Asia Institute at the National University of Singapore. Both uh, professors, academics, both economists, have a very strong contribution to make to the conversation we need to have today. Uh, we want to be able to decipher some of the implications and some of the long-term issues that the rest of us have to incorporate into our thinking uh, as we uh, imagine and try to make sense uh, of China that is maturing uh, into a sustainable economy. The documents that were put together last week, the 14th five-year plan for national economic and social development for 2021 uh, to 2025, uh, and a very interesting document called the Long Range Objectives Through the Year 2035. Uh, this is a new document in that uh, it tries to project uh, China's uh, growth economic uh, priorities uh, for another 15 years. Uh, this was not done before, uh, but it's a draft document. It's a document written in pencil uh, to sort of outline the priorities that the country will have. Uh, some introductory comments that I'd like to make is this, that uh, Every time uh, these centrally planned documents were put together in the past, I think the rest of the world uh, did not take them as seriously as we should have. Uh, central planning was discredited many years ago by the way in which it was managed in other economies. Uh, but I think China has come to a point where the, the process, the, the two consultative forums that were put together to uh, validate this documentation and validate the thinking of this documentation are highly representative of the feel of the ground and uh, both accountable um, as well as democratic in that there is a buy-in process uh, by the respective uh, stake owners in the, in the system. And so you would see that at least the, the five-year plans are actually distilled down to the provincial and the local levels where the key performance indicators of the local administrators are aligned with the objectives that are, are put together. If you had missed uh, the importance of this process in the growth that China has seen since it joined the WTO in, in 2001, uh, you would have missed uh, the tremendous growth that it has uh, been able to put together. The difference between all that China has achieved uh, from 2001 to today uh, has been mostly uh, in the physical realm, in the buildings, in the infrastructure, and so on. And the feature of the 14th five-year plan and also the long-term objectives uh, is that it's starting to focus more on the soft uh, aspects of the economy, the skill sets, um, uh, salaries, uh, wages, uh, productivity, and, and so on. And also, of course, the environment and uh, making sure that this is a sustainable economy. I have with me uh, two professors who have been wrapping their minds around uh, the issues that we are, uh, that we are confronted with, uh, both domestically for China and all of us who are counterparties of China in one way or another, whether we run businesses, 
uh, we, we are part of the financial system, uh, or we are entire economies uh, looking at China and trying to make sense of our own place uh, in a new world where uh, China is an engine of growth uh, for the rest of the, of the world. So I'm going to start uh, by inviting Professor Bert Hoffman uh, to, to sort of outline for us uh, what his thoughts are uh, in terms of what we need to be looking at. Uh, and then I'll ask uh, Professor John Gong to tell us uh, what his priorities are. And then I will start to decipher it uh, and, and plonk in uh, my, my priorities, the, the, the issues that I see uh, speaking to people on the ground here in Beijing, but also um, with a good sense of what the rest of us uh, need to be uh, paying attention to. So Bert, uh, would you like to start for us? Now I'm very interested to hear uh, what, uh, what, the, what are the priorities that you've made sense um, of uh, the final documents that were put together? Thanks for your kind introduction. The plan is indeed a very good strategic document. And if you, if you are uh, governing a 1.4 billion people economy, you have to pull together some, some sort of a, a unified vision. And that's the plan. So it is no longer a plan as in the old planned economy, it is a strategic plan. And, and in that sense, it has a very good function. Uh, second, uh, I think that the highest priority for China's government is no longer growth, but it is the quality of growth. If I were to summarize the whole plan in one word, it's quality of growth, uh, i.e. moving away from, from a heavy emphasis on the quantity of growth. Yes, it's still there. And implicitly, there is still a growth target for the next five-year plan, but explicitly it's no longer there, which is quite significant. It just says that from year to year, we'll, we'll set a growth target, but no longer for the whole of the five years. Uh, Xi Jinping, he uh, gave an interview last year after a big party meeting on the plan, and he said, look, by 2035, uh, we, we, I would not be surprised if we can still double our economy. That's how he put it. And that would mean for the long term, still a relatively high growth, i.e. Uh, uh, it literally translates into 4.75 percentage growth per year for the next 15 years. So that's still a relatively ambitious target. Uh, and and there, are some, there are some issues that China needs to work on. Uh, for the next five years, as I said, there's emphasis to the quality of growth. It was already a little bit, a little bit there in the 13 five-year plan, but it has been reinforced now. And the big new thing is the dual circulation strategy. Uh, it's important for people to know that term because it will come back for many, many more times. Uh, whereas basically the, the, the thinking earlier was, look, we, we rely more on the external circulation, we rely on exports, we rely on foreign investment for growth. We now are shifting the priority to the domestic circulation. So there will be more emphasis on domestic demand and particularly consumption. There will be more emphasis on domestic supply chains, particularly in critical supply chains, such as integrated circuits and other sensitive areas, if you want. And there will be more emphasis on what China calls indigenous innovation or domestic innovation, innovation by Chinese. It's to some extent, this is what's happening when a country gets richer. So that this, this is not that that should not put it as if you want uh, alarm bells ringing or protectionist, a protectionist direction of China. No, this is what happens if, if China, uh, once a country gets richer. 
And so uh, you become less trade dependent, you start innovating more at home. And, and it's what, what Japan went through, it's what the United States went through when, when, when they uh, got richer in the 19th century. So there's, in, in that sense, it is quite normal. But of course, these are circumstances, uh, um, the circumstances, external circumstances are a bit uh, uh, special this, uh, this year. And in the drafting of the plan, there is tensions between China and the United States. And so there is a concern that from China's side that they might not have access to critical technologies. So they wanna make them at home. And second, uh, um, China looks at uh, how the rest of the world has managed COVID and, and they don't see much of a strong rebound in growth in the rest of the world so that external demand will also be less. So also from a more practical point of view, this dual circulation strategy will help China grow over the next five years. Those are your top line points. John, would you like to um, get in there and um, add your perspective, especially you are in Beijing and you're quite uh, associated with some of the, you know, the people who attend these two conferences. Thank you, Daniel, for the invitation. First of all, you know, this is a, it's a very long document, 140 some pages, uh, tome, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, total agreement with what uh, Bert has said so far, you know, it really emphasizes, uh, you know, innovation, indigenous innovation, stuff like that. Uh, but in, a, um, in addition to this, um, I want to also mention uh, two things. Um, one is that uh, this document is basically a vision document. It lays out a whole bunch of targets, uh, unlike you know some of the older five-year plans that have you know set out very detailed uh, targets and also about things how to do this. And it's not like that. It's, it's really a vision document, in my view. So uh, call it planning or not, really doesn't matter. I mean, it sets out a goal, a goal of uh, basically elevating China to a modern society, and I put it you know, very bluntly, I think it's a modern society, both in terms of uh, economic, uh, economic uh, metrics, but also all other types of metrics uh, reflecting different aspects of a modern society. I want to mention two things on, 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 in addition to what Bert has said. One is that um, you know, this very much reflects uh, President Xi's um, uh, central theme of a people-centered growth agenda. Uh, if you look at the you know, the targets uh, set out in, in this document, you know pages and pages are devoted to uh, a lot of sort of social welfare type of targets uh, for things like education, uh, medical care, environment, all these things. Now these things are not so much uh, quantitative in nature, but it, it just describes a lot of the the nice things that you would expect of a modern society. Uh, so, so this also resonates very well with a very popular phrase these days in Beijing, in political circles in Beijing, which is called a new development concept. What, is, what does new development concept mean? I know there's new development, mean, uh, development really means a GDP target. Um, now, you know, it doesn't even mention the real target, okay? Other than, you know, he said that uh, uh, trying to double the economy within 15 years or so. Uh, but, it, it talks about other aspects of, uh, of growth uh, that are directly relevant to people's lives, uh, about housing, for example, about you know, uh, 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 urbanization, about uh, uh, medical care, about uh, the, the, you know, the number of kindergartens <laughs> for, for a certain number of population. Right? I mean, these are the very concrete um, things that are directly relevant to people's lives. So you know, my first impression is that this would 
definitely um, create a lot of uh, opportunities in the service sector. I mean, all the things he's talking about, these, these sort of people relevant uh, uh, aspects of a, a new growth model, they're all very much service oriented, right? service oriented. So, um, so certainly, you know, in my view, uh, China is moving towards a direction of modern society that's uh, heavily service centric. Um, uh, you know, if you, for example, if you compare the size of the medical sector in the United States, as a percentage of GDP compared with China, right? There's no comparison, okay? So clearly China is moving towards that direction, okay? So this is one thing I want to emphasize. Second thing is, I think uh, this uh, 14th five year plan is, I think for the first time it really mentions these two uh, independence kind of ideas. One is, is full security. Uh, the other one is energy security. Uh, I think these are quite new concepts. I mean, uh, they haven't really talked about. I mean, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I keep thinking about you know, why that's so important, right? Well, I think it, you know, behind this two uh, security concepts, um, I think there's a quite strong signal that China is probably prepared for the worst. Um, and, and, and that's a, a very significant development in my view. Um, you know, we have never had any problem with food security. Uh, I think for the first time, these two securities represent uh, you know, major opportunities, but I think it sends out a very strong political signal. Uh, and also, I think probably has some strong implications for the uh, energy global market in the future. Uh, that China, uh, I don't think China is going to be um, uh, massively relying upon imports. Uh, you're going to see, um, you know, the country has a, has a plan of... Um, to be robust and to be resilient towards uh, any future actions in, in, in the energy market from other countries. Uh, that that's uh, the two things that I that I have in mind uh, that I want right. to add. Well, thank you very much for that, John. Because um, I had looked through the document. Actually, you're right. They are uh, incredibly large document. They read like a three-year or four-year uh, degree program uh, in governance or in, uh, in statehood. Every chapter is very detailed. Uh, and thank you for that comment on energy and food security. In fact, um, the long range document just puts one of the most important uh, goals that it set itself to be carbon neutral by 2060 and, and uh, to, to peak carbon em emission by 2035. And you're right, they sort of uh, veer away from setting GDP growth targets. But let me draw on both of you um, on a number of themes that I thought warrant a discussion or your general idea or your input. Uh, GDP growth. What was very interesting during the sessions was that Li Keqiang found himself having to defend that this year they will do 6%. And uh, the media was asking him again and again, are you sure 6%? Uh, and he said, yeah, I'm sure it's 6%. Given the several uh, human capital themes that are in these documents, um, wage increase, uh, and as John has pointed out, the uh, rural urban growth and uh, sustainability, rural vitalization, that is, um, you know, healthcare, uh, education, uh, kindergartens and all that. Of course, the consumption economy. Uh, if you take these soft themes, which are different from infrastructure-based growth that define the last 20 years, um, what sort of GDP growth should be expecting China to be galloping at or trotting at uh, in order to achieve these things? As economists and, and as people have seen other societies evolve, uh, where 
general income goes up, and then that has to be tapered off with productivity, and then uh, expectations go up, healthcare, education. How do you think that scenario is going to uh, play out in China in the next five years or the foreseeable future? I noticed that China introduced social security a few years ago and, uh, and in insurance and, and so on. So the services component of personal wealth uh, is increasing in that regard, coupling with consumption. Talk to us through a little bit. How do you think that's going to you know, play out? First of all, speaking of the GDP growth um, this year, um, uh, Premier Lee actually said above 6%. That's what he said. And, uh, he did. Yeah, and, and the journalists were pretty much pressing him that uh, you know it should be more than that. I think uh, there's, there's a quite wide consensus that uh, China is likely to achieve uh, something you know way better than six percent. I think, uh, and it's actually not quite surprising because you know last year was was, was horrible, right? Uh, and uh, two percent, right? Yeah, two point three percent. Yes, and historically. Uh, Right after the pandemic, something like this, uh, the economics tend to be uh, bouncing back very strongly. Uh, for example, uh, after the 1918, 1919 Spanish uh, flu, the United States, you know, experienced a, a, a very long stretch of growth, high growth, over 10 years actually, all the way up until 1930s depression, Great Depression. Uh, and I think this is going to happen among um, better off economies, more advanced. You know, richer countries basically. Um, and usually, after a, a natural disaster, the great countries doing even better. You know, the poor countries sort of linger. Um, and and I would put China into the category with the other more advanced economies at this point. But typically, you know, after a strong recovery, the first and second year after the pandemic, things will taper off and then sort of you know slow down substantially in the future. But still doing very well. I, I want to mention two theories relevant to this you know GDP forecast. Uh, one is that you know, in economics, we have this convergence theory. In other words, as the economy uh, does much better, as China becomes part of the developed world, um, even though, you know, this is still very controversial, you're not going to see the kind of growth rates um, uh, typically that we saw in the, you know, uh, in the last 10 years or so. Inevitably, things are going to slow down. Things have been slowing down at this point, right? So, um, you know, you, you look at the uh, typical... Uh, developed the world annual growth rate, you know, two or three percent. It, it's very good growth, actually, right? Uh, so sooner or later, China is going to move into that that world. That's going to be, um, you know, the norm for China. The question is, how long is going to take? How long can China sustain six percent, uh, even five percent, four percent in the next fifteen years before it move into that world? Um, so, so this is one theory. China is converging to the growth rate. Uh, that is typical of a developed world. Second is the is the demographic change. Um, you know, on top of the slowdown growth, um, you know, China's population is going to peak. It's now already peaking. Um, you're going to see quite significant drop in population size in the next 10 to 15 years, and that has a significant impact on the economy. We all know what's happened to Japan, for example. These are major challenges. The question is how fast that uh, China's economy. Uh, economic growth rate is going to slow down. <laughs> and that's a, anybody's wild guess. My own view is that uh, for the next 10 years, um, it's probably still going to be above 4%, hopefully. By the end of the, the next decade, uh, if China is still able to maintain above 4%, that's already a, 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 a tremendous achievement. Uh, and that surpassing the United States within the next 10 years, I think.
right? This is a very percent difference in economic size at this point. Very good to top line points. Let's ask Bert uh, to, to jump in there with his comments and then we'll add them up. All right. Well, the reason why people think that 6% is actually a very low target is that it's already in the bag. If you have the last quarter of last year and China would not grow from that point, it would give 6% annual growth. So uh, in that sense, uh, it's going to be more. Um, the market consensus is around eight, and that sounds about right. Uh, with the US stimulus, which is very positive for the rest of the world, it might actually be a little bit higher now that the stimulus has come through, which adds one percentage point growth to the world. It adds three percentage point to the US, but four, one percentage point to the world, it might actually be a little bit higher because I said the, I think the expectations in drafting the government reports was we're not going to get that much growth from the outside world. Uh, that may yet change. In the medium term, we're looking for the next five years of our estimate of potential growth rate. That's what a concept economists use, of around 5%. And the way to look at that is to sort of say, how much can you get out of investment? How much do you get out of the increase in the labor force? Or in this case, it's a decrease in the labor force. And how much can you expect in productivity increases? And then if you add that up, sort of based on historical experience, you come to sort of around 5%. Um, it's not a very solid estimate. And frankly, uh, it's, it's hard to pin these things down, especially productivity. One of the key problems in China's economy has been total factor productivity, as economists call it. But it's not just China. It's been around the world. Ever since the global financial crisis, productivity increases have come down. So despite all the innovation, despite the great fintech and, and, and other stuff going on in China, it, it doesn't seem to translate that much into economy-wide productivity. One key reason is, is that uh, there's still quite a few protective sectors in China. Um, and so the exit of firms is not that easy in China. And so uh, despite the fact that a number of companies doing very well, a lot of non-performing or weak performing companies still hang on and therefore productivity levels overall don't increase that much. Again, that's not just a China problem. We've loose monetary policies around the world. You see the zombie companies uh, becoming a phenomenon worldwide. And um, so 5% growth for uh, potential growth for the coming five-year plan seems quite okay. But as John said, that it, it might further level off as China becomes richer, as China becomes high income. The implicit target in Xi Jinping's growth of doubling GDP is really quite ambitious at 475 Macroeconomic tools that are available to China to, to taper that and to counter uh, global forces, what are the tools available to them? I noticed in the working papers when they were uh, referring to um, the deficit budget, China tends to uh, refer to it on a year-to-year -year deficit to GDP rather than deficit to spending. What other tools are available to a country like China that is different from, say, the US or other countries in the region uh, that we can expect them to be using? China has used its macroeconomic tools, fiscal policy, monetary policy, quite extensively last year. 
but also there is one key constraint on the use of those tools, and that is the debt to GDP ratio, where that's not really quite high for a country of China's income levels. It's going to 300%. Uh, last year, it was at a 24 percentage point to from 272 to 296. Uh, so that's becoming a little tricky. And China realizes that. So actually, the aim of monetary policy is to stabilize this. And so monetary policy is constrained from that point of view. And fiscal policy, to some extent, because the overall government deficit is planned to go down as a share of GDP. And therefore, it contributes to the stabilization of the debt levels. One thing that China has done very well and really has as an additional point is to not just have a broad monetary policy, but to target that monetary policy, i.e. the central bank opening up specific credit or discount windows where banks can come with particular kinds of loans to get a discount rate and on small and medium enterprises, it is on green finances, on some of the government priorities that if you want, there is green quantitative easing and there's SME quantitative easing, which is quite unique to China, can be quite powerful. But at the same time, uh, what's interesting is that the government has been quite um, determined in trying to demonstrate um, a kind of a balance between funding state-owned enterprises versus uh, small enterprises and private enterprises. And on top of that, um, lately there's been a push towards engendering foreign investments as part of the overall capital mix. And they, are, they tend to be contradictory policies. Um, on the one hand, it seems that the state wishes that the most important progress in technology and so on are made by state-owned enterprises, but they're not. They're made by you know, the private sector. And then even for foreign capital, it's actually directed at specific industries, as you said. You know, talk to us a little bit about this, this, these contradictions and how, they, how do you see them being managed? Or are they contradictions? I'm not sure, you know, it's contradiction. Um, I don't think the central government has a policy of, uh, you know, particularly favoring one type of enterprises versus other. At least uh, this is very true at the um, um, at provincial and local level. In China, you know, what, what's very unique is that uh, the competition is, is not so much driven by, uh, by the central government but really by the regional and local and provincial yep. governments. Yep. Uh, and these governments really don't care, SOE or, or you are a foreign company or uh, a private company. They all treat you very well. It's a, a mixed picture, even though, you know, the central government uh, in a way sort of you know, reflect the President Xi's strong faith in the in, in the region of SOEs, right? I mean, he has a very famous saying about this. Uh, but if you look at the, you know, what's really happening in the market, uh, I don't think there are very strong um, sort of domestic policies uh, in supporting these companies, uh, probably on the international stage. You know, these. I mean, if you look at the companies that are really heavily involved in the BNR initiative, for example, I would say the vanguards of most of these companies are state-owned enterprises. They're probably supported, you know, by various policies from the central government. But in domestic markets, it's all over the place. And let me put it this way: the competition in China is mostly between municipal governments in China. Uh, and it's fierce. They come up with all kinds of policies, funds in support of the companies that are creating jobs and tax revenues for their local jurisdiction. I don't think you know they have a strong preference of one type of company versus the other. So um, investment are welcome. 
There's no such thing as an SOE investment or poor investment. Investment is investment. It does wonderful things. Yeah. It's all welcome. I've experienced uh, talking to banks. Uh, the experience is something like this, uh, especially the banks with the national charter. Their loan books are all filled up by January every year. They're given a, a target of 30% year-on-year growth on loans. By the end of January, they've, they've uh, you know, distributed their loans and to the state-owned enterprises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they start worrying about small businesses and so on. And in fact, we sometimes have conversations with banks saying, okay, um, now that we have been directed by the government to go out and look out for small businesses. How do we even start the process? We don't have the risk management capability and the ticket size is small, too small for the kind of books that we have. This thing about access to credit for small businesses, it's still an issue in China. State-owned banks already well configured with the state-owned enterprises. That transition to giving more access to small businesses is still work in progress. It's still in its early days. You're absolutely right. This is an issue with respect to uh, the size of the borrower as opposed to the, the nature of the borrower. This is a universal problem. I mean, banks don't like to make loans to small companies. I mean, it's, it's true everywhere, I guess. Uh, it's because of the cost structure, because of the risk factor. Uh, so, so this is actually nothing new. Bird made a very good point about uh, China's uh, central government, central bank has a, has a meticulously designed scheme of providing incentives for the banks to make specific loans to a specific type of company. And, and, and I think, you know, this is a, is a very cleverly um, concocted plan. Whether it has been successful or not, or whether uh, it creates a problem for the banks uh, from a risk factor, whether uh, it, it really helps these small companies, that, that I'm not sure. I haven't seen sort of strong evidence that, you know, this is really working. This is a commercial bank's problem. They just don't want to make loans to small companies. <laughs> That's a fundamental statement, I would say. Let me add to this and a couple of observations. One is it is true that uh, there is a disproportionate share of loans going to state enterprises versus private enterprises, if you look at the overall size in the economy. But to some extent, that is also because there's a differentiation in industries state enterprises are more in heavy industries compared to private enterprises. So you can sort of more capital intensive. So there's some explanation there. Unfortunately, state enterprises in general have lower returns and there are some issues with that allocation. But second, the large state banks, the centrally owned banks, Structure Bank of China, they take in disproportionate amount of the deposits, but then of the loans, actually it's less so. So they, on net, they lend through the interbank market, through hundreds of smaller banks that are dependent on the interbank market for their funding, that those banks have better channels to small and medium enterprises. But the third, and that's the big question outstanding at the moment, uh, China had solved the problem, or not China, and finance had solved the problem of access to small and medium enterprises, i.e., with the enormous database from transactions in e-commerce, suddenly they had expanded massively the access to finance of small and medium enterprises. What the regulatory changes on end finance is going to mean for that access remains to be seen because we don't don't know yet what what that is and end finance is going to be being restructured. But this sort of, this new FinTech 
was truly, a, a, it was a revolution. And I've seen it happen when I was living in Beijing, whereas indeed 10 years ago, there was no small and medium enterprise that will get a, that will get a loan despite all the, all the promotions from the government. That changed with, with FinTech. So once the dust settles, we will see how far it is, uh, 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 this is being pulled back. Uh, my concern is exactly and financial. I heard that the end financial chief executive just resigned a couple of days ago. Go Shuqing made a speech in Hong Kong in January saying that uh, same business, same rules. In other words, if end financial behaves like a bank, we'll impose the same capital requirements on end financial and so on. It's more like a process by which they are pulling back on, on some of these um, new players uh, to to be regulated in the same way as traditional banks to make them part of the system. And the thing about the interbank uh, lending market is that further downstream in that market, there are small financial institutions with credit problems and, and uh, liquidity problems. Very interesting. I mean, for a country where the growth was at one time 12%, uh, you, you do have a liquidity risk downstream, which are some of the financial factors that we need to take, get a good picture of how that's evolving to get a sense of how credit is being disseminated and uh, and holding up the, the, the private sector, especially in the small business sector. And 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 as we bank, the innovators have uh, extended credit to the small enterprises. Um, so it'll be interesting to see to what extent uh, the intentions of these documents and the policies that come out in the next few years coagulate to um, continue that process, which has already started the, the, the process of innovation and access to credit. Talk to us a little bit about the rural vitalization. Um, maybe John would have a, a very good feel of uh, what's going on in the rural sector and, and um, Bird as well, because you've actually lived in, in Beijing and um, and you've seen yourself, you know, um, the infrastructure part of the rural development is very clear to be seen today. Uh, the human capital part, what needs to be done. Uh, I noticed uh, and there was one comment in, in the document saying that agriculture will become a smaller part of the overall GDP. I don't know what the number is, but it's quite dramatic in the next 10 years or so. So as agriculture becomes less of the GDP, comprising less of the GDP's components, uh, I think John mentioned food security. How is the rural community going to evolve in the next five to 10 years, you think? I think this is very much from a, uh, uh, you know, President Xi's sort of a very strong personal preference. Um, it, you know, he has a strong uh, improved agenda. Uh, and today's, you know, the poorest, uh, the, the least, um, uh, 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 the, the, the segment of the population that is the least benefited from the, China's economy boom uh, is the uh, the rural population, um, and the, the rural area has been sort of in neglect for a long time. Uh, I think mostly driven by uh, people leaving the country. Uh, the younger generation, you know, they, they don't go into the fields cultivating the soil anymore. They uh, move to the city. They are looking for jobs, uh, and in today's China. Uh, the people who are really sort of touring in the fields in the agriculture sector, these are people, you know, in the 50s, the 40s, uh, uh, young people don't even know how to uh, do agriculture anymore. Um, so, um, you know, I think there's a big problem. Um, and uh, uh, in, on top of this, there's also China is trying to build uh, the, the local infrastructures uh, for the rural communities to close the gap between uh, 
you know, between local community, I mean, the rural and the urban communities. And you go to China, you immediately see the big difference. Uh, so, um, so that's what the government intends to do, uh, to revitalize the rural communities, uh, you know, to invest in the local communities, uh, and to, at the same time, um, beef up uh, agriculture uh, from a security perspective. Uh, so I would expect that uh, uh, China is going to make some big investment in this area, uh, uh, in, in both uh, a soft infrastructure as well as hard infrastructure. Um, so um, that might be an investment opportunity. So the number that I saw in the in the 2035 document is that uh, in 2017, 21st, so 27 percent of the workforce is in agriculture. In 2035. Um, the document expects 6% of the of the workforce in agriculture. That's a dramatic shift. I'm sure there's productivity involved, there's machinization and so on, but that fundamentally transforms the, the rural rent landscape and the way in which it grows. So I'm just trying to imagine what that means in reality. 27% of workforce to 6% of workforce. That's a quite large number, actually. You know, 1% decrease is a, represents a fairly large population uh, reduction in the rural area. But that's happening regardless of uh, you know, government's plan. I think, uh, you know, I think one thing that, that's uh, taking place right now in China's uh, rural communities is the consolidation of cultivation, in my view. Right? I mean, uh, in the old days, everybody does this little part of land and, and, and does himself uh, his, his own cultivation. But now you're seeing more and more people consolidate the land and, and they're not doing this anymore. It leads to the, somebody who's doing this and, and they're using machinery to do this. Um, that's actually, it might be a quite significant uh, structural change uh, that calls for less labor input, uh, more capital input. It also calls for uh, technology input. But you have a view because you've seen several economies, not just China. When a country makes that kind of uh, transition, what, what does that mean? The 27% is too high. And, uh, so it, 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 it's probably statistically there's some questions, but also China has already been heavily promoting agriculture by means of subsidies ever since the entry into the, into the WTO, where agriculture prices went down. Uh, food security became an issue and China has been subsidizing it, the, the, the countryside quite a bit. It has made massive investments over the past 10 years, in part as part of the anti-poverty drive, massive investments in rural infrastructure, which is which has been absolutely dramatic. And uh, I, I literally, I, I went to the same village where I went first in 1992, when it took me almost three days to get there from Beijing. And now it took me six hours to get there. So to, just to give a, you an impression of how much that infrastructure has changed. Uh, but but what, what has not happened, and, and I think President Xi is hoping of it, is to have new jobs move to the countryside. And here's something, John said something before, the competition is between, is between cities, is between municipalities in China. Uh, they don't want to let go of a lot of infrastructure, so they continue to subsidize infrastructure, which in many countries would move far more to the rural areas. The second very problematic area is, is indeed education and the overall service provision. And I think there the plan tries to make a big difference so that it's, it's better to live in the countryside. But nevertheless, the quality differences in education between, say, rural Guizhou and, and 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 Shanghai are just are just tremendous. It's like it's like 
an African country and, 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 and a European country. That, those big differences, literally uh, of an order of magnitude. And it's very hard to overcome that, frankly. Uh, so the one area where I think the rural areas have a comparative advantage is in aged care. China's population is aging. Uh, uh, they do not necessarily want to stay in in, um, in 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 the cities, moving to the less expensive countryside. If there are communities that can absorb them, I think that would be a good growth area. But at the same time, I still see a movement of people from rural areas to urban areas. China is quite reluctant about that. Yes, they're moving on the hukou system, but the the land rights attached to Huko is still an issue. Uh, uh, so, so, so uh, let, let's say there's still some contradictions there. It's not, it's not yet clear cut where exactly the policy should be. Related to that is the, the whole discussion on income disparity over time. Um, you know, uh, during the, the two meetings, uh, I'm not sure which minister was mentioning uh, that, um, you know, that, that um, China has technically eradicated poverty, officially done that, and, and then there were questions as to what measurement did they use, uh, was that the UN uh, or some of the other agencies, the IMF uh, measurement and so on. Um, but the real issue is, um, you know, the, the, the technical de definition just con continues to be an issue, especially if there's income disparity going forward, right? Um, do you see that um, China is the one country that might be able to ameliorate that? Because, you know, in the liberal economy, liberal capital economies, uh, that's not going away. Uh, you know, they're becoming highly financialized and, um, you know, and the disparities. But you'd like to speak to us? A yes, China has eradicated extreme poverty at its own poverty line, which is quite comparable as America is a bit higher than the international poverty line that the World Bank uses. So for the World Bank, China had already eliminated poverty by 2018. China now, according to its own poverty line, says extreme poverty is gone. And that's a great achievement, no question about it. But if you look at countries that are at China's level of per capita, income, i.e. $10,000, you would not count with a poverty line of $2.20 in 2011 prices, but more like $6 or $8. If you look at the $6 and the $8 line, you still have 300, 400 million people in poverty in China. So, so in other words, it's not that everybody is suddenly middle class, not at all. Still a long way to go. Second, this rural-urban disparity is really very high. It is about one to three in China, and it has been a bit less in the 80s. It's been more in the, in the 90s and the 2000s. Rural incomes are now growing more rapidly than urban incomes, but it's big. Second, it's not just income disparity, it's wealth disparity that is very big. Because most urban citizens, they have a big chunk of wealth in their apartment or in their second apartment or in their third apartment if they've been smart. Uh, rural citizens don't have that and they have very incomplete rights on their land, which is you know, the asset that they could potentially trade, but they don't have the right to benefit from the capital increase on that. So there's a big wealth disparity as well. And frankly, it's very hard to get sort of back on board even if you now move as a, as a migrant 
to urban areas because the big gain, the big capital gains were between the end of the 90s and now. I mean, the apartments in Beijing are now really, really very pricey. I wouldn't be able to afford it. Uh, there's other cities as well, of course, that, that, that where it's a bit less so. So, but those, those dis to, to remove those disparities very hard. What is normally a big engine of equalization is education. But again, there, the quality of rural education lags far behind that of urban education. So it's not altogether clear that there will be a rapid decrease in inequality between urban and rural areas, given the measures that are currently on the books. Good point. Just for the sake of completeness, let's get back to the question of domestic con consumption. Um, I think the 2035 goal for domestic con consumption is 60%, um, whereas the 2019 um, matrix was more like 31, 39% uh, of GDP. And um, from 39 to 60, that's almost a doubling. Um, so what is domestic consumption comprised of? What is the profile? What is the scenario that we're looking at um, in order to see that come about? I noticed that during the pandemic, by the way, you know, China uh, increased the limits on, you know, duty-free purchases, uh, made Hainan a larger island, uh, a larger, you know, destination for, in fact, Hainan is now the world's largest duty-free uh, destination. You know, all the Europeans are lining up to be seen in Hainan and so on. Um, uh, but domestic consumption is far, far more than that. Is that domestic production and domestic consumption um, or is that, um, you know, internalization of uh, imports? Um, um, you know, give us a sense of what you think you see in these numbers. Are you sure right now it's only 39%? I thought it's more than that. That's I've... household income, but maybe there is a confusion. Total income, including government consumption, it's already 52, 53%. So maybe it is from 53 to 60%. From 39 to 60%, frankly, that would not be possible. But right. household consumption is at 39% of GDP. But in any case, uh, you know, we, we would really expect that the uh, household consumption would increase significantly. Uh, so Daniel, you asked this question, you know, what are these things are coming from? Um, I would say two points. One is that, uh, um, you know, the increased cons household consumption uh, certainly will come from, uh, you know, buying more expensive stuff, buying things of more high quality. Uh, that's definitely true. But I think it's going to be something more than that. Uh, for things that are not related to just products and, and, and goods, uh, a lot of it actually, I would say, coming from the service side. Um, you know, high quality uh, medical service, high quality education service, uh, more travel, travel overseas, vacations, stuff like that. And, and also in the cultural goods, all these things. So, you know, they, 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 in these areas, um, I think there's a, a quite large uh, uh, potential. Uh, you know, the, the, today's China, you know, consumption is more than just about uh, I think at this point it's more it's more about you know better clothing, better food, multi these things, right? Uh, uh, but I think in the future it's going it's going to uh, develop into something more than that. Uh, it's going to be uh, uh, more of a service component in my view. Second thing is about imports. Um, I think there's going to be a huge potential for imports. Also working role at this point uh, in terms of importing things uh, from nice, good stuff from all, all over the world. You know, 
it, things really can sell on the Chinese market, right? Uh, I, I give you one example. You know, uh, e-commerce has enabled imports of um, uh, coffee from Rwanda. How would you imagine that this could be possible in the past? Uh, you've never heard about coffee from Rwanda, but you know it, it's actually selling quite well in China. Uh, <clears throat> Alibaba set up a, a regional sort of a, a, a collection center in Rwanda, e-commerce center of Rwanda, uh, helping local farmers to uh, package things, put on the right uh, 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 label, uh, and, and these things are being sold on e e-commerce platform directly to Chinese consumers. So, uh, so I think, uh, you know, in summary, I would say uh, service-oriented consumption is going to be a big part and imports is going to be the next big part. And I'm going to be throwing in some numbers, but, uh, you know, so, something, uh, and, and yes, there is a middle class in China that is growing, that has been driving consumption, because household consumption has been growing, has been growing more rapidly than GDP, just not that much more rapidly than GDP. So that's why it, it grew, slowly creeped up over the last decade from 36% of GDP to now 39% of GDP. But if you really want to make a major impact on this, you can only do two things. One is uh, get a higher share of the pie of GDP to households, i.e. more rapid wage growth than, than GDP. Or second, uh, get the savings rate of households down overall. Now, and, and, and despite despite all the encouragement of consumption, China's Chinese still save a lot. And everybody saves and every income level and even at every age level, even though there is a, a more distinct pattern there. But key among them is that the, the, the rich, the richest share, they save 50, 60% of their income. Whereas the lower uh, income levels, they save 15, 20% of their income. So a redistribution between the two would help. Uh, second, social safety net in China is still at a very low level. Yes, it's expanding. Pension is now uh, covers 95% of people. Health insurance covers 95% of people. Uh, DBAO is, is uh, 70 million people, but at, at very, very uh, uh, low levels of income. So you could, you could imagine that government takes an active role in some redistribution through the budget, sponsoring the non-contributable pension, uh, rural pension system from say 130 to 140 to double that or triple that, and you would get definitely more consumption. But uh, you, you, of course, that, that requires sacrifices of others, i.e. Some, somebody needs to pay the taxes for it. The second is to strengthen the overall social, safe, social security uh, for instance, by devoting more dividends from state enterprises to the social security fund or giving the shares of state enterprises to the social security fund so that people say, oh, my pension is actually assured. It's much stronger now than I thought it was before, so I can consume a bit more. So there's a whole range of policies that would that would lead to a bit more equality. It would lead to a bit of a higher share of households in the overall pie. And a better and a better uh, uh, division between, if you want, the state enterprises and the rest of the economy. So a lot of things to do there. Difficult yep. things. Difficult things. They're not easy policy-wise, but uh, but they would all feed into higher consumption.
Uh, in fact, the taxation part, I, I would expect taxation to come down so that there will be more disposable income. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how that works out. Um, and in terms of services, I mean, I need to pay insurance, which is very high. Uh, uh, and I figure that's because it's it's not broad-based. If it was far more broad-based, uh, it'll be, you know, the rates will come down. But taxation is very low in China. Let's, uh, taxation, Real, is, over, taxation, overall taxes as a share of GDP is now 18%, 1.8. And that's down from 22% only three, four years ago. China has actually been reducing the taxation rate, the VAT, and especially taxation on small and medium enterprises. Uh, and it has been continuously keeping people out of the personal income tax. Deliberate policies, in part to stimulate, uh, the last year it was to stimulate the economy. But by now, 18% of GDP is really quite low uh, because there's lots of obligations that China also has, uh, has taken on as a state. So I think uh, uh, taxation overall will come up. Uh, personal income tax will be a bigger part of that. Uh, yes, as a foreigner, I'm sure you pay a lot of personal income. You very easily hit the 45%. But the Thank broad you. masses of the Chinese actually don't pay personal income tax or hardly, except for the, the, the payroll taxes. The payroll taxes are quite high. Pension insurance uh, in the formal system is really quite high. Uh, that's in part because there's very little returns on the investment uh, that, that are being made. So, uh, again, lots of areas of reforms uh, ahead uh, to, to, to get to this modern socialist society in 2035. To add to what you just said about taxation, there, is a, there are objectives to be met for increased number of um, um, you know, financial centers and, um, and tax havens in, in China. So, uh, that's an interesting um, objective that they put into the program, which is uh, increasing the special economic zones um, for different purposes, right? So, so that's that. Okay, uh, let's wrap up. Um, final thoughts from both of you, and then um, you know we will we'll, we'll wrap up. I think you've given us a very good um, range of um, issues to drill down into, and it's been a good conversation. Last thoughts, uh, Bird, and uh, and then John. The next five years are going to be quite critical for China and to see how they move to uh, this new development model, this dual circulation, how they get up uh, research and development spending and become more innovative, contribute to more basic uh, basic innovation. We haven't touched upon this at all yet. Uh, it's it's important for China for its long-term growth. So I look forward to, uh, to, uh, to tracking that. And I want to mention, I want to say that, uh, you know, this is sort of like a, a vision statement, a vision uh, documents um, and it's very hard actually to go back and 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 you know to compare what's really happened to you know what this vision uh, uh, is saying. So, uh, but it, but overall, I think you know it determines basically. I think the real purpose is determines uh, where the central government's uh, budget money is going to go towards. Um, there will be uh, you know quite uh, significant uh, uh, funds allocated for. Uh, achieving some of these targets. Um, but I think the, you know, to be honest with you, I think the overall impact on where the China's economy is going to go towards um, is, is going to be quite limited in my view, you know, uh, uh, because, you know, the economy is going to, has a huge inertia. It's going to go, it's going to run on its own, uh, regardless of what the government does. Um, and uh, um, it, it, I think overall China's economic growth is still, the engine is, Still growing 
uh, it's moving a very good direction. Uh, and it's, it's nice to see, uh, you know, as, a, as an ordinary citizen that, uh, you know, to see that uh, President Xi is also emphasizing a lot of people relevant aspects of the economic, the new economic growth theory, um, it, you know, as, as, as opposed to really just uh, looking at the, uh, the GDP growth figure. Uh, I think income distribution um, and returns of, of uh, capital returns on labor, these concepts uh, do matter a lot actually uh, in the future. Thank you very much. In fact, uh, I'll just add to that. Um, you know, when President Xi was proposing to, you know, and actually now um, um, his leadership will continue for uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, he didn't just, uh, you know, engineer it such that um, you know there's a continuity in government, but he also has put in this 2035 document, which says here's the agenda. This is these are the things we're going to be working on. So you know, it, it focuses everybody. Uh, on that. Uh, I, one area that we didn't cover in our conversation is really um, the global implications and the global issues that China will be facing. In fact, um, the top of mind right now is that the global cost of capital is, is the cheapest it's never been, and that's denominated in dollars. Um, you know, and China, as an effectively closed economy in terms of uh, you know, the current account convert convertibility, um, pays a high price of capital uh, domestically. Um, you know, and and uh, it, it exports on that basis too. So, um, you know, the 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 arbitrage of capital cost uh, is something that I'm quite curious as to how that's going to work out uh, over time. But somehow China has managed over the years, uh, but because of the trade engine, um, as trade decreases, uh, and also uh, in these two documents, it has already started to recognize that trade. Uh, will become less of a, um, you know, a driver as it was in the first 20, 20 years since joining WTO. Um, I think we've got a, a good range of uh, issues to, for us to uh, bear our minds on in terms of uh, what to look out for uh, as China uh, puts in place the 14th five-year plan uh, and the long-range objectives through the year 2035. Thank you, both of you. And I also note that Bert lived in China for about 12 years as the, uh, the World Bank representative uh, to, uh, in Asia. So you're very, very familiar with China and good to be talking to both of you because you know China well. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.